Good morning. One quick announcement, youth group today. It's at Perry Park, one to three. Uh, they're going to try to play softball today, so if you're going to go, bring a glove, and they're going to have pizza today, I believe. Uh, so bring an appetite, too, I guess. Um, if you would, turn with me to the Gospel of Luke. Changing books today. Start of a new book, Gospel of Luke. Lord, we're so thankful, God, for your word. It, it, we, we, you've given us four gospels. Uh, it means good news, Lord. and uh, We're so thankful for the good news that we have, the good news that we have in Jesus Christ, that, uh, that you loved us when we were at our very worst, Lord, and saved us, called us your own, made us your children. And uh, if people, if someone here today hasn't done that, God, that what an available gift they have. We're just so thankful for that. Pray today, Lord, that you'd speak to our hearts, that you'd minister to us today, Lord, and, and right where we're at, Lord, you're so faithful to do that. We just give you this morning, this fresh book, this new day, Lord, and, and just ask you to speak to us, Jesus, in your name. The Gospel of Luke, uh, just a little background, Luke is a Gentile. He authored uh, most of the new, a good chunk of the New Testament. He authored Luke and the book of Acts. Uh, interesting, he's a Gentile. Luke is a doctor. Uh, he's one of, the, one of the people that Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians that, you know, it says not many wise, not many mighty, not many noble. He's part of the not many because Luke is wise. Luke is a researcher. Uh, Luke is a doctor. Luke is a historian. And so that's who we have. Uh, we're looking at his gospel today. Uh, he gives us more information in his gospel. It's the longest. Also, Luke is the longest book in the New Testament, and he uses medical terms. Uh, Luke is the most detailed that we have of all the four gospels. He has more detail in there. It's a chronological account. There's more miracles, more parables, more people that we're introduced to. Uh, Matthew's account is is an account that's really to the Jew. It's written to the Jew, and Jesus is presented as king. Mark's account, his gospel, is written to the Greek, or to the Romans, and he's presented as a servant. Uh, and John's gospel, it, Jesus, it, it, it reveals his deity, who he is as a person, and, and Jesus in his deity, that he's God, and it's universal. Luke is written to the Greeks. And his theme, one of his themes, and he'll use it and say it more often than anyone, is that Jesus is the Son of Man. And uh, Luke 19, verse 10, it says that the Son of Man, this is kind of a key theme uh, for Luke, that the Son of Man has, came, has come to seek and to save that which is lost, right? It presents G Luke presents Jesus in his humanity, right? That that the Bible says, uh, Isaiah says, that he's a man of sorrows, acquainted with our grief. That Jesus knows your pain and he knows my pain. Why? Because he became a human. Hebrews says that he's acquainted with our infirmities. He knows your struggles and my struggles, your pains, my pains. He knows disappointment. He knows loss. He knows rejection. 
He knows all those things. Why? So he can relate to you and I. That, it's, that, that, that we're not distant. Jesus bring, bridges the gap between God and man. God has become a man. And he's come to seek and to save the lost. You and I, we're lost. Outside of Jesus Christ, you're lost. Whether you know it or not. You're missing something. The whole reason, you know, Ecclesiastes, Solomon, and I, I was going to share this yesterday at a wedding, but I didn't. Uh, uh, Solomon went on a journey in Ecclesiastes. He, he was maybe a, having a midlife crisis, and he goes on a journey, and he sees the fruit of man. He sees the work, the hard work, the labor, how fruitful it is, and people gaining things and increasing their wealth and their income and their life by working hard. But he says, you know what? It's all vanity. And then he says, you know, two are better than one. You know that scripture in Ecclesiastes 4. Two are better than one and a threefold cord that's wrapping God in your life is not easily broken. And when Solomon went on that journey, he says this, he realized something that God has set eternity in every man's heart, that there's something missing. The question of your life, the question of my life, God put it there. Why are we here? How did we get here? Where are we going? Those questions God put there because he set eternity there's something more to this life than just living and dying. How much you can get in this life, what kind of car you drive or house you live in or what the spouse that you have, the children that you have, those are part of it, but there's something bigger, there's something more. Ecclesiastes says that, you know, Solomon realized, man, there's, there's, God has put eternity in our hearts. And that's why people come to Christ because they realize there is more, that they need something more. So Luke says that the Son of Man has come to seek and to save the lost. Jesus says that he, he looked at the multitude as sheep having no shepherd. He had compassion, the Bible says. And compassion is, I've said it before, is your pain in his heart. That's compassion. When you have compassion on someone, you see them walking down the street or uh, you know, whatever it is, or you see him in a situation or a marriage or, and you have compassion. It's like, man, I can feel your hurt. I can feel your pain. Well, that's what Jesus does. He has compassion on people and he feels your pain. He feels your hurt, your suffering, your sickness, the situation that you're in. Why? Because he was there. He became a man. And he's acquainted with your griefs and your sorrows. And he came to seek and to save you as a shepherd, right? Because sheep without a shepherd are in trouble. They're not wise. They're, they, they, get, they go astray, right? They, they wander. And they're pretty much defenseless. You know, uh, maybe sheep might be able to buck you with their head. I don't know what they can do to you. Sheep, uh, they're not going to bite you, I don't think. Uh, you're not afraid of them like you are a lion, Right? Sheep are defenseless. They need a shepherd. And that's what Jesus came to do, to seek and to save the lost. Why? Because we're defenseless in this world. So part of Luke's theme, son of man, we'll see that. It 
says this in verse 1. Inasmuch as many have taken into hand to set in order a narrative of those things which have been fulfilled. Luke is now speaking of not just the Gospels that have already been written, Matthew and Mark, but many other people have started to write things about Jesus, things that were true, things that weren't true. So, so Luke's idea here, he's putting it in order, a narrative, the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as those, verse 2, who were from the beginning eyewitnesses and ministers of the word delivered them to us. Luke has done his research. He's had interviews, eyewitnesses. That's the word uh, uh, in Greek that where we get our word autopsy, right? It's a, it's a uh, thorough examination, it means. Luke is given a thorough examination. He has had eyewitnesses. Mary would have still been alive, Jesus' mother, and so many people, Zacchaeus, people that he interviews, that we get introduced to in this gospel like no other gospel. That's, that, that's what Luke does. And it says in verse 3 that it seemed good to me also having a perfect understanding of all things from the very first to write to you an orderly account, most excellent Theophilus. So he gets, gives us something in chronological order, and then he introduces somebody to us named Theophilus, only named here in Luke, right at the beginning, and in the book of Acts. A man by the name of Theophilus. Not much is said about him. His name uh, means something. If you're a, a, a mom or a dad, you've named your children, right? And you had a name in mind. Maybe it's uh, the name of uh, your mom or dad or your grandma or grandpa, or it has meaning to it. Something, your name means something. Well, in the Bible, it definitely did. It was maybe an aspiration someone had or a reminder uh, of, of who God is in the Bible. And Theophilus means lover of God. Loved by God and a lover of God. And maybe his parents had that type of aspiration. Who knows? They may have been believers. He also was uh, not a Jew. He was a, a Roman, probably. Most excellent. That is a title. He was probably a high Roman official. Wealthy. That's who Theophilus was. And um, Theophilus probably being a high Roman official, scholars believe that he was probably Luke's owner. Luke was a physician. He traveled with Paul. He served with Paul, but he was a slave. And that was common in those days that, that Luke would have been uh, a wealthy person's personal doctor, companion. And so Theophilus probably, many scholars believe, probably owned Luke at one time. But, you know, as, as Luke traveled, he meets up with Paul. We see we, he connects with Paul in, in Acts chapter 16 is where we're introduced to Luke as he writes that narrative. And uh, probably that's where he gets saved. Luke gets saved and probably comes home at some point with Theophilus and Theophilus gets saved. And Theophilus has this mind of ministry, and he's born again, and God changes this relationship between Luke and Theophilus, and he frees him. He becomes a free man, and now probably not only frees him, but funds uh, his ability to travel with, with Paul, who needed a medical doctor. Paul had medical issues, 
So Luke begins to travel with Paul, and, and Luke is there at the end with Paul. And there, when he writes to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 4, he says, only Luke is with me. That's the last guy that's right by my side. Luke is with me. And so God changes this relationship, and that's what he does. When Jesus enters into a life, Jesus changes relationships, doesn't he? I've seen him come into a life, into a marriage, a marriage that's dissolving, a marriage that isn't doing well, and Jesus will come and change the dynamic of that marriage. Saves people, heals, restores, he changes relationships, he fixes things, right? He's a healer. And he loves people. He loves marriage. He designed it. And he changes this relationship between Theophilus and Luke. And, and not only are they now brothers in Christ, but Theophilus is his funding, probably funding Luke's, not only his journey with Paul, but his research to write not only the gospel of Luke, with the book of Acts, which, which is written in a way that could have been one of Paul's defenses in Rome. A defensive uh, writing a letter uh, for Paul. So Theophilus would, was a great guy. And verse 4 says that you may know the certainty of the things in which you were instructed. Uh, this, that word certainty means the foundation, that you would have a sure foundation, sure footing that you might be able to stand on this. It's an apologetic letter also. A defense of the faith. If, you, if you've ever heard of Lee Strobel, uh, some people have heard of Lee Strobel. Uh, he was a, uh, an investigative reporter with the Chicago Tribune. Maybe you guys know him. Uh, he wrote The Case for Christ. And interesting, you know, his wife gets saved and it freaks him out. He's an atheist. He hates Christians, and the worst thing that could possibly happen to him is his wife becomes a Christian, starts going to church. So in his mind, he's like, listen, I'm smarter than people, and I'm going to prove not only to my wife that Jesus wasn't real, that he'd never raised from the dead, all these claims of Jesus. I'm going to prove her wrong and, and Christianity wrong. And he began to do this investigative research on Jesus and, and his claims and his death and resurrection, and he gets saved through the process of that investigation, right? It's an apologetic, and that's Luke's writing. And if you've ever seen, there, there's a movie out, if you don't want to write the book, read the book, the book's good. The movie's really fun to watch. It kind of gives his testimony of, of what happened and how his wife got saved and then it, it, his research of trying to prove things wrong. That's Luke's aim here. He wants to give an apologetic letter. He wants to give you certainty, something to stand on as a believer, as a Christian. And he's writing this also to, to Theophilus originally, probably to strengthen his faith, but it's something the church has had for 2,000 years, over 2,000 years and it says this, now we're introduced. Luke goes to a couple here, living in a certain time. It says, verse 5, there was in the days of Herod, the king of Judea, that's Herod the Great, a certain priest named Zacharias of the division of Ab Abiah, 
and his wife was of the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. So in the days of Herod, just so you know, Luke is setting the time. The, the time was evil, wicked. Israel was in a backslide. They hadn't heard. There was been a, a, a season of 400 years of silence from God. And, and, uh, and Herod the Great is ruling in Jerusalem and in Israel. He's a pawn of Rome. He's, he's, uh, Rome has hired him, put him in this position to be king. Uh, and scholars say, people say, you know, because he was so brutal, it was better to be uh, and safer to be his pig than it was to be his son because he murdered so many people, killed so many people. He was paranoid of losing his position, and he just killed people. He was an architect so much, he rebuilt the temple in Jerusalem. He built Masada. So many, if you go to Israel, I haven't been there, uh, but if you go there, so many places that you stop, go back to Herod's day because he was an architect. And so many buildings that are still around, foundations and buildings are from Herod's day. Things that he built, funded, designed, that's who he was. But it was an evil day. It was a wicked day. Ananias and, and, and Caiaphas were the high priests. They were corrupt. The priesthood was corrupt. It was bad in those days. But here's a bright spot in the middle of those evil days. And, and we can probably relate. We're living in the end days, the last days. Things are getting worse and worse. People are getting worse and worse. And in the middle of that, here's Zacharias and Elizabeth. Zacharias, his na name means God remembers, and Elizabeth, her name means God keeps his oath, right? What parents that they had in those days, in dark days, they, they remember that God remembers. They name their kids, you know, something very special. I, I know that God remembers me. He hasn't forgotten. That's something you can remember today, too. In, in dark situations, hard times, times of your life that, that, you know, you might be walking through the valley of the shadow of death, you can remember, listen, God remembers. Even though, you know, we, we play the, Justin sang that song, Waymaker, <clears throat> what a great song, because God does remember. Even when we don't see it, he's working, right? It's a great truth. And so their parents, name, and they get married God remembers and God keeps his oath. And maybe you're waiting today for a promise. God remembers you. And God sees you. And he keeps his promise. You can hold on to it. You know, I can be sometimes pessimistic. I'm thankful that my wife is optimistic, right? We work good together. When I'm pessimistic, she's optimistic. It's bad for me when she becomes pessimistic. Then I don't know where to go, right? She's always optimistic, right? And that's the outlook their parents had. It was optimistic. Listen, God remembers. He hasn't forgot. He keeps his oath. Remember. Sometimes we have to remember. We need to read the Bible. We're encouraged to read the Bible to remember the promises of God, to know the promises of God. So they're a bright spot in the middle of these dark, dark days. 
And it says in verse 6, they were both righteous before God, walking in all the commandments and ordinances of the Lord. They were blameless. blameless. They were faithful in a dark climate. They didn't give up. They were righteous, even though the priesthood wasn't righteous. People weren't. They were living in dark days. They could have just given up and said, you know what? Everyone's living this way. Why not give up? They're doing it. They're living that way. They're acting that way. Why should we serve the Lord? We can still be Christian and do this and do that. And no, it says that they held their ground. They kept the commandments of God. They weren't sinless. It's not like they didn't make mistakes. They weren't perfect, but they kept God's commands. They walked with God in, in the darkest of times. And that may seem like, yeah, we're doing that. You might say that. But we're going to read here in verse 7. They did it. Not only was it dark days, dark times, people all around them were walking away from the Lord or not genuinely serving God. They did it in a time which they were in their own valley, their own difficult situation. It says that verse 7, they had no child because Elizabeth was barren. And it says they were both well advanced in years. They were past childbearing. They couldn't have kids anymore. Elizabeth had gone through menopause. They were old. Things that can get us very discouraged, right? Like, because for Elizabeth, it's, it, it doesn't mean as much to us in our culture right now, because a lot of people, they just maybe choose not to have kids. Or, but in those days, it was looked upon as a reproach. It lo- it, 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 for, for Elizabeth, people looked at her as the, if she had sinned, that God's hand of blessing was off of her life. That there was a real problem. Probably people looked at Elizabeth like they would, like her and Zacharias, they were fake. Like, you guys can pretend to serve God. You guys can act like it, but look at God's hands not blessing you. You don't have any kids. In fact, when the angel tells Mary, when Gabriel tells Mary about Elizabeth, he says, listen, the one that is called barren, her nickname, her handle, what people called and referred to her were, what in, in, they referred to her as someone who was barren. They didn't say, oh, you know, that, that Elizabeth, you know, the loving Elizabeth or the caring Elizabeth or the kind Elizabeth. It, you know, they said, oh, you know, go get some sugar down at Elizabeth's. Which one? There's a couple that live on our street. Go to the one that's barren. Oh, and that was a curse. It was, a, it was a bad term. You didn't want to be called barren in Israel. Right? So they're serving God and walking with the Lord, hopeful. No matter what, God, I trust you. Trust you in this. They're living through all their friends' birth announcements, naming children, what about me, God? You know what? doesn't matter. I'm going to still serve you. I'm going to still walk with you. And now it looks like the promise is passed. Like there's no way. Elizabeth has is, is gone through menopause. 
There's no way. She's not ovulating anymore. It's over. Her hopes, her dreams, and her prayers. No longer she's not praying, Lord, please, this month, this year. She sees it like, ah, it's over. There's no chance for us. It looks hopeless. And yet they still continued to walk with God in all his ordinances And it says, verse 8, so, so it was that while he was serving Zacharias as priest before the Lord in the order of his division, he didn't stop serving. He didn't have a pity party. According to the custom of the priesthood, his lot fell to burn incense when he went into the temple of the Lord, and the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. So uh, in Israel... Two weeks a year, the priests served. There was over 20,000 priests in that day. There was a, a lot of priests. So they served two weeks a year, and there were 24 courses of priests. And you guys taking notes? 24 courses of priests. Each course had 300 people serving at one time. So many people serving. So you're serving two weeks out of the year. Uh, and, and I say all that, the bottom line means that this way he hit the lottery to do this, to burn incense, to go into the table of incense. Because even if your lot was to burn incense uh, or to be part of that duty, there were three lots in that duty. Some people were to clean the table from the day before. And then one person would set up all the fire and get ready and they'd start it. And then the third priest would come in and he'd be the one to burn the incense. He'd be the one that was praying at the, on the inside of the temple putting the incense on the coals, on the fire, and people were outside praying at the same time. That was Zacharias's lot. It represented prayer. Probably Zacharias thought, man, we've prayed so long for a child. But God, you know what? You're faithful. And he went in there and had this, you know, for two weeks, that was his duty. I'm burning incense, burning incense. Burning incense, thinking of prayers, like what else can I pray for? Man, I've, you know, I've been praying for a child. Let me pray for our nation. Let me pray for you know, whatever. So many prayers. And, it, and, and, and so he's praying, and people are outside praying, and they're seeing the, the smoke. They're smelling the incense. says this in Psalm 56. Turn there just with me, with me for one second. You guys know this for sure because I've read it. Psalm 56. This is the Psalm of David. We just went through part of David's life. This is something David wrote down. In verse 8, he says, you, you number my wanderings. You know everywhere I go, the path that I'm on, where I'm at. And then he says, you put my tears into your bottle. Are they not in, in your book? Right? And, and if you know, 
you may know, you may not know, that there were little tear bottles. And the women would have them especially. You know, David is saying, you number, you number my wanderings, put my tears in your bottle, God. And, and the ladies and the men could have them too. When they cried, something they cried, they would oftentimes they would take that tear bottle and they'd put it to their eye and some of their tears would go into that bottle. And it would be a reminder of what they're going through in that day and their prayers. And it would be a reminder to them that that's what God's doing. God is putting your tears in his bottle and he remembers your pain and your suffering. And when the woman, I think it's Luke 11, came in and she washed Jesus's feet, it says that she washed him with washed his feet with her tears. She came in that she was a notorious sinner. And she came in weeping and she cried at Jesus's feet and she washed his feet with her tears, probably tears that flowed from her face. But many people believe that she actually took her tear bottle out knowing that this is Messiah and she dumped it on his feet because Jesus knew her and she knew who he was. And then it says that she anointed his feet after that with fragrant ointment, right? That's the prayer bottle that God remembers your tears. He remembers what you're, he knows what you're going through. And then it says in verse nine, when I cry out to you, then my enemies will turn back. This I know. He doesn't say because I've seen it. He says, because God is for me. God is for you. You can, you can hold on to that promise. God is for you. He's not against you. We can be discouraged, distracted. We can even be in sin. That's why Jesus, that's why the angel, why God is sending, we're going to see John the Baptist on the scene, and right after that, Jesus Christ. Why? Because the nation was a mess. And that's why Jesus sent his son. Why? Because we're a mess. We need a savior. We need someone in our life to help us. We need a rescue. Right? You can turn back to Luke with me. Jesus is on a rescue mission. God hasn't forgotten. God's timing is perfect, though. It says this. Verse 11 then an angel of the Lord appeared unto him. As, as he's in there performing his duties, he'd be the only one in, only priest in there in the holy place, just outside of the Holy of Holies where the Ark of God was. It says, an angel appeared unto him, standing on the right side of the altar of incense. We know we're going to find out that this is Gabriel, a messenger. It's been 500 years since an angel has appeared to anyone appeared to Daniel 500 years earlier. Kind of weird. We were, we were camping uh, last weekend, and my daughter started talking about, you know, fallen angels, demons. You know, there's, there's angels and demons in the Bible, and, and for some reason my daughter, instead of having this this encouragement that there's angels. She has this like fear of demons. But listen, when angels show up, you can be afraid. It says this in verse 12, Zechariah saw him and he was troubled. He was shaking and fear fell on him. 
So that's just an angel. Zacharias is, is freaked out. And as much as he's freaked out and people say, man, if I could just see an angel, if I could just see this, or man, I would believe. We're going to find out. Zacharias sees an angel. He speaks to him, tells him all these things. And then we're going to find out Zacharias doesn't believe. Like he's freaked out, sees this angel. This angel's talking to him. What's Gabriel look like? And it did not increase his faith. You think, man, if I see a miracle or an angel, let me see a, you know, this or that. It doesn't change anything for him. He actually doubts and he questions. And we're going to find out that, that Gabriel says, you know what? You're going to be mute until you have a baby now. You're not going to be able to speak those words of doubt and discouragement to people. I didn't help him. And verse 13 says, the angel said unto him, so Gabriel notices that he's afraid. He says, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid, Zacharias. Your prayer is heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. Your prayer is heard. Zechariah originally, maybe he thought, oh, my, the prayer that I've, you know, I planned out praying every day for this, these two weeks. Like, what's the prayer? It, no, it, it's a prayer that he quit praying. It's an old prayer. He quit hoping that things look dead. It's a prayer that he no longer was praying. But you know what? God remembered. That's what... Revelation 5, Revelation chapter 8, it talks about the bowl and an incense and a censer. And it says in those things, in that incense, they're the prayers of the saints that ascend up to God. That God, his, he's collecting your prayers. He knows your prayers. He knows what you prayed last week, last month, last year, and some of those things he's working on. If they're in his will. And they prayed for a son, but God was waiting. His timing is perfect. If you take a cake out of the oven too soon, you really don't have a cake. If you take it out too late, my smoke alarm goes off. Sometimes it goes off anyways, right? And that's not good either. But God's timing is perfect. It's like with a baby. If, it's, if, a, if, a, if a baby is premature and they go to the, you know, the ICU or different things, uh, because it's not good to come early. It's not good to be late either. Right on time. And God's never early. God's never late. He's right on time every time. But just the problem is his timing and, and your timing and my timing are different. And we don't want him to align with our timing. We got to align with his. Lord, what's your timing for this? Because the answer isn't always no. Sometimes it's wait, and I have trouble with that. It's, it's hang on. It's yes, but wait. And that's what it was for these guys. It says, your prayer is heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness. That's good, Right? Psalm 30, verse 5 says, Weeping 
lasts or endures for a night. That's a season. But joy comes in the morning. That's another season. It might be in the, the weeping season of, season of your life. It says that joy is coming. Not only you'll have joy and gladness, but many will rejoice. Not everyone is going to rejoice at his birth. Not everyone is going to be thankful for the message or the messenger that John the Baptist is going to be. Not everyone is going to love this guy, but many will. A lot of people turn their hearts. God uses this guy. And John's in great company of people, uh, uh, ladies who were barren for years of their life. And some of them passed the age where it looked hopeless and helpless. That's the company that John's in. And, and all those people were used mightily in God's kingdom. Many will rejoice at his birth. He'll be great in the sight of the Lord. And he'll drink neither wine nor strong drink. This is a Nazarite vow. He will also be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. It doesn't say he's going to be famous or popular or powerful, wealthy, or successful in the world's eyes because the world measures success differently than God does. Enoch was a guy that walked with God, and God took him, it says in Genesis in Hebrews 11, it says this, that Enoch had a testimony that he pleased God. That's his testimony, right? That, that should be our testimony. That should be our goal. That should be our success. Man, God, can, I want to please you with my life. I want to please you in what I do, how I raise my kids, the husband I am, the spouse I am. That's success in life, pleasing God. Jesus is going to say about John the Baptist, that there was none greater than him. There was no one greater than John the Baptist. You know what, John? John never performed a miracle. If you follow the life of John, there's not one recorded miracle in his life. All he did was preach. All he did was speak. And he, Jesus said, he's the, there's none greater born of woman. And he, the Bible says that he is filled with the Spirit from his mother's womb. I think that's important. Number one, it's important to know that at conception, you're a baby. You're a child. You're a human. That God can fill you with the Spirit in the womb. A, a, a baby in the womb is a child. It's not viable tissue. And it tells us that that's what we need to be equipped by. His Holy Spirit, that God lives inside. There's power, power that the, the disciples needed. It was a promise of the Father, the Holy Spirit. And it's something that John got. In the Old Testament, it was something that would come and go. People would receive power. The Holy Spirit would come upon people. It's a promise to New Testament believers. We have a seal of the Holy Spirit, number one. And then there's an anointing, a power of the Holy Spirit. Power for what? Miracles? No, John didn't have any. John just preached. He used his words. And it says this, verse 16, He will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will also go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah. Elijah, to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just and to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. <clears throat> you don't have to turn there for time sake. 
That's what it says in the book of Malachi. There's been 400 years of silence. And the last thing Malachi says in chapter 4, in verse 5, it says, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet. And Jesus would say that. He says, I am going to send you Elijah. But if you believe it, if you'll receive it, this is Elijah. John, this is the one I promised. Jesus says that in Matthew 11 and in Matthew chapter 17. And and so Malachi says, behold, I'm going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. Before that time, that's Jesus's second coming. It's tribulation time and Jesus's second coming at the end. He says before that time, and it says he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children, the hearts of the children to the fathers. And then he says, lest I come and strike the earth with a curse. This is the promise that they've all been waiting for, that people in Israel have been praying for. And Gabriel says, that's the promise. This John is that one that was spoken of. He's the one that's coming. And verse 18 says, Zechariah said to the angel, how shall I know this? For I'm an old man and my wife is well advanced in years. Zacharias is doubting here. That doubt won't stay. That doubt won't stay because John is going to become everything that God calls his life to be. John's going to be everything. How many times, if you picture John's life and, and, and you know, you as a mom... A dad, you have certain stories you tell about your kids. Uh, Lee, uh, my wife's dad, uh, Bruce, my father-in-law, he's got a lot of stories, and he tells a lot of the, the same stories uh, uh, about the kids, so, stories. Mariah, for some reason, heard a story for the first time right before she went to college a couple days ago. She didn't, she didn't realize, but, but you tell a lot of the same stories. Can you imagine how many times... John the Baptist said, hey, mom, tell me that story again about my life. What did dad see again? Oh, dad, tell me what happened when you were in there burning incense. Who showed? What was his name again? What was the angel's name? How many times did he hear that story? Like the psalmist says, like arrows in the hand of a mighty warrior, so are children of one's youth. Zacharias and Elizabeth had one arrow, and they made it count. They shared with this young man, this young boy, all the prophecies, all the promises, all the things in God's word that he had spoken. And, he sent, and then they sent that arrow off. And John was everything. We'll see, you know, Isaiah 40, he's one crying in the wilderness. So many prophecies in John's life that that's who he would be. And then at the end or at the beginning of, of John's ministry, you, you know where we find him? We'll, look, we'll see it in, in, in chapter 3 of Luke, that he was waiting in the wilderness. John was waiting. He was at, raised, anticipating God's word, his call, the, to hear the starting gun go off, to say, okay, now's the time. Your ministry starts today. And where was he waiting? He wasn't waiting at Walmart or at Dick's or at, he was in the wilderness. Lord, I know this is my call. 
I'm preparing for it, right? You need to prepare for your call. He was at in the wilderness waiting for the call. Okay, now it's time. It's time for you to go. And, he was, and then he began to baptize there. He heard God's word. Why? Because he was anticipating it. He was waiting for it. How many of us do that? See, right now we're going to see Zechariah, he's doubting. But he's not always going to doubt. He's going to raise this young man to walk with the Lord, to serve the Lord with one goal in mind. It was to please God, not to please man. The success in his life was to be a success in God's eyes. Because this kingdom's not going to last forever. It's so temporal. And John and Elizabeth, they real, or Zacharias and Elizabeth, they realize they have one arrow to shoot. And this is it. But he's doubting right now. I'm old. I'm well advanced in years. How can this happen? It makes me feel good that Zacharias can doubt when he sees an angel, right? Sometimes I doubt God's word. I'm like, Lord, can I hold on to this promise? Is this for me, right? Zacharias, this guy sees an angel. He's doubting. Doubt and fear, those are the devil's tools. Those are the devil's tools. You need to know that. He wants you to doubt. He wants you to fear. He doesn't want you to believe. Ephesians chapter 3, Paul says this, that, that God is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we can ask or speak, think. That all the promises in Jesus are yes and amen. We need to be able to believe God's word. And the battle for you and I is going to be to hold on to it. To believe it. But you know what? Even in spite of Zechariah's not believing, God still does it. He comes through. Just unfortunately, Zechariah is mute for nine months or more. So he says, I'm, you know, I'm old. I'm well advanced in years. And the angel said unto him, Listen, I'm Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. I hear God's voice, and I was sent to speak to you and bring you these glad tidings. Listen, I know you're old, but I'm an angel. I stand in God's presence. Maybe you've heard of me, Gabriel. But he says this in verse 20, but behold, you will be mute and unable to speak until the day these things take place, because you didn't believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their own time. You're not going to be able to talk. Verse 18, really, Zacharias is asking for a sign, and here's your sign, right? You're not going to be able to talk. And it says, verse 21, the people waited for Zacharias, and they marveled that he lingered so long in the temple. And when he came out, he couldn't speak to them. And they perceived that he had seen a vision in the temple, for he beckoned unto them and remained speechless. You know, he's making, doing some sort of sign language that he just learned in the temple, trying to tell them, you know, I saw an angel. You know, how did he do that? Uh, and I can't talk. Um, and, he, and he's beckoning. But he would come out, and it would be that 
the blessing he would say over them. They call it the ironic blessing. Numbers chapter 6, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you, to be gracious to you, to lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. He's got to say that in sign language somehow. And they're like, what, what happened to you in there? And he beckons to them. Couldn't talk. In verse 23, it says, as soon as the days of his services of his service were, were completed, he departed to his own house. He goes home. And after those days, his wife, Elizabeth, conceives and hid herself five months. I don't know. Did she doubt? Was she worried? Did she think, what if I have a miscarriage? What if something happens to me? She hid herself five months. She said this, thus the Lord has dealt with me in the days when he looked upon me to take away my reproach among people. For her, God has taken her reproach away. God's promises, now she has hope in this life. God wants to give us hope, remind us of hope, bring back hope. We have a book of hope. We have God's promises and his word, something we need to fight to hold on to for our own lives, to apply to our own lives. Thankful for this book, thankful that, that for the story of Zacharias and Elizabeth. But you know what? Because things in your life might look like, man, this is impossible. It looks dead. How can God do anything in this? Was anything too hard for the Lord? That's what you know, the angel asked Abraham. Anything too hard for God? No, that's a rhetorical question. Nothing's too hard for him, right? We see that all throughout the word of God. So Lord, we thank you for your word, the truth of it, the hope we have in it, Lord. We're starting this new book, God, Luke's gospel. So much hope in there, so much evidence. Jesus, we get to see you in your humanity because you want to relate to us in our humanity in our struggles, in our pain, in our doubt, the way Zacharias and Elizabeth even doubted. Quit praying for things. Uh, we get to see hope and have encouragement. So we just give you this book, Lord, as we travel through it, God, and pray that it would get into our hearts, into our minds and, and into our hearts, that it would change our minds, our thoughts. We just thank you for it, Lord. We love you. Uh, thank you for all your promises and all your work that you want to accomplish in our lives and through our lives, Lord. We want to hold on to those things. In Jesus' name.